First Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm going to read from chapter 3 verse 14 down to chapter 4 verse 5. Again, First Timothy 4 after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then you get to Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus, all the T's are kind of together. First Timothy and all that's before Hebrews and James. So, 1 Timothy 4, and from chapter 3, verse 14, let's attend carefully, because this is God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times or later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There's a danger in these latter times posed by enemies of the truth. You may recall from last week that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy so that he would know how people ought to conduct themselves in the house of the living God. The church, he went on to say, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the truth is so important because the truth saves souls through a vital relationship with Christ. The teaching of the truth, Paul will go on to say, will save Timothy and those who hear him. Therefore, like the high roof of a temple, the truth has to be held up high and supported for the sake of being God's witness to a dying world and also to train those within for godliness. Well, when the truth of the gospel first was spreading out in those early apostolic days, it was sometimes met with riots and hostility. Today, in some countries, churches that preach the gospel are in danger from outright violent opposition. But here, nobody really cares what the church says. Does that mean that opposition is gone? No, it means that opposition to the truth has taken a different form, the form of deceptive, false doctrine that's ready to infiltrate the church under the guise of Christianity. Paul warns us here of an enticing substitute that leads people away from the Christ, the true Christ of Scripture. And so to prepare you for today's scripture, I wanted to ask you to consider which is easier, 
to have a religion of externals or a religion of the heart. Isn't it easier to do church, to check boxes, as in saying, I went to church today, or we kept the stations of the cross, or fasted, or knelt, or participated in a sermon ceremony? Or is it easier to do the spiritual worship of belief in the Redeemer, to obtain the knowledge of God and to pursue holiness taught by the Holy Spirit? Well, it's easier to perform the ceremony, right? It's easier to do something, anything, rather than engage God from the heart. A religion of externals comes about from false teaching, and it is a deadly danger. Well, today there are two questions that we'll answer. And one of those is, what should we expect in the latter times? And then secondly, why are externals so deadly? So first, what should we expect in the latter or the last times? And God's answer is that we should expect bad teaching in the latter times. And I look I direct you back to verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Bad teaching is teaching of false doctrines about God. And Paul says he heard this truth expressly or clearly from God's Holy Spirit, a reminder that this letter, like all of the Bible, isn't advice from a man. It's God's word breathed out by God in the words of prophets and apostles. Paul mentions this explicit saying of the Spirit for emphasis. Lots of people have questions about what the last days will be like. And the emphasis here is bad doctrine will be the rule for the last days. It's what we can expect. And you may be asking yourself, well, are we living in the later times or the last days? And the answer is, yes, we are. As quickly as Paul gets to verse 3, he is writing of the present troubles that Timothy's noting there in the church in Ephesus. And those are examples of last time's error. Way back then, way back then, not at some future date for us, they were forbidding to marry and requiring abstinence for foods, from foods rather, meaning the latter times have begun in the history of the world. If you are looking for other scriptures to confirm this, 1 Corinthians 10 is a place where Paul says, These things were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns Timothy that in the last days there will be, be times of difficulty brought on by wicked men. And by verse 5 of that chapter in 2 Timothy, Paul says, avoid such people. In other words, don't be surprised by the wicked. These are the last times, so the wicked are among you. Now until the Lord returns, the church should expect that some will depart from the faith. Have you ever known of Christians who have departed from the faith? The word depart in Greek gives us the English word apostasy. 
It means to defect or go away or fall away or rebel. And the faith they leave is the whole body of Christian doctrine, including basic doctrines about who God is, what he's done in the world, and who Christ is, and what his work on the cross means, and so on. And this is the truth that the church has to hold high uh, for sinners to see, these basic doctrines, but it's from these that some apostatize. Now in a moment we're going to see the exact kind of apostasy that was happening, but let's just step back for a moment to take in the big picture. Let's try to get a bird's eye view of the last day's situation. And let's get there by way of a hypothetical question. So again, a bird's eye view of the last days. Ask a hypothetical question. Uh, What would you do if you needed to destroy a temple? Back in the year 1687, the Venetians from Venice, Italy, were at war with the Ottoman Turks. And the Turks were fighting had built fighting positions on the Acropolis uh, around the ancient temple of Athena there in Italy. And that temple was called the Parthenon. And that was an old building even way back then. And it was made of stone and it had rooms on the interior. And it's one of those that had the long uh, columns or rows of pillars or columns. And the Turks were using it for a powder magazine. You remember these are black powder days. And perhaps the Turks thought that the Venetians wouldn't shoot at such a historic building from classical antiquity. But the Venetian general gave his order and a single cannon fired, scored a direct hit on the powder, and the resulting explosion collapsed much of the temple and brought down many pillars and the roof collapsed. Now Paul has just said that the church is the temple and the buttress of the truth. It has enemies. And it's motivated, or sorry, not it, but there are motive, uh, the enemies of God are motivated by an enemy general who wants to bring the temple down. How does he do it? Well, often when the, when the gospel first goes out, where it's never been heard, Satan motivates men to try to crush it by force and oppression and persecution. But when those techniques fail or when the church grows strong in spite of persecution, Satan relies on cunning tactics. He brings in false prophets. Have you seen the reports about Chinese communist police operating inside U.S. borders? It's unsettling, isn't it, to have enemies on the inside with a corrosive influence. Satan's contingency, just in case he the church gets established is to bring in heretics. Beloved, it's going to be like this until the Lord returns. There will always be false teaching to needle the church and to be repelled by you and by me through knowing, believing, and practicing the truth. Well, now let's look at Satan's operation in detail. Some depart from the faith, verse 1 says at the end, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The teachings of demons are teachings in the mouths of people who are influenced by demons. Notice the contrast. There is the Holy Spirit who expressly tells this to the church, and then there are deceitful spirits 
Which spirit has your ear and your attention? The Holy Spirit with his truth or deceitful spirits? It might not always be easy to recognize spiritual warfare or demonic activity. The Bible tells us that demons are real, they are active, uh, but that their power is severely limited. Why are their abilities limited? It's because the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead and he's gained a tremendous victory over Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil. They are, after all, created beings. They were created good, but some of them sinned and fell and remain now evil and fallen. And if demons are active, as they sometimes are, it is always with Christ's permission. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 says that Christ, through his death, did it to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there are two errors to avoid when you think of demons. One error is thinking there are none and that they have no effect. Another error is thinking that they are involved in everything. Some folks seem to think that spirits are close in all the time as if there was a a bogey behind every trouble they have in life. But a bad night's sleep or a worn out car battery is not a sign of demonic activity. The world's not a haunted house with a spook behind every corner. Nor is every temptation that we face one that comes directly from Satan. The book of James tells us that we're tempted when we're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. Now, Satan is a tempter, to be sure, but all that's needed for temptation, for sin, for temptation to succeed is our own sinful hearts. And so you should find that there is some comfort in this, that demons cannot control a person in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells. And so Christians should never live in fear of demons. But saying now what demons are not doing brings us to the question, well, what are they doing? What is the sign of spiritual warfare? And the answer is deceptive, false teaching. Bad doctrine or contra-biblical teaching in the mouths of liars who may be church leaders. Verse 2 of your text says, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Insincerity is hypocrisy. Think about this now. When we believe the truth of Scripture, it brings about a vital, living relationship with the Lord Jesus. A hypocrite, on the other hand, possesses a counterfeit relationship and says, this is real. The leader or teacher says, I really know God and claims to be enlightened when in fact there's no connection. And if you listen to what they say, you'll find that rebellion is there against the true God and that their desire is to undermine God's kingdom. They're able to go on with their work because they have seared consciences, which you see there in verse 2. The conscience is a moral warning device. Our consciences are there to warn us 
and to bring us pain when we are thinking about doing wrong and when we have done wrong. A conscience is a little like an open wound in that it hurts when we sin. God gave us our conscience so that we would react to our own sin and ultimately go looking for God. The more we know of God's law, the more we see our sinfulness. And this is actually very healthy for us. The law of God is like a magnifying glass. And looking at ourselves through it, we discover the sinful pollutions of our hearts. We discover our fallen nature. And we become so alarmed that we go looking for a doctor. The conscience is essential in that it reacts with shame. And when we sense shame at our sin we then have a clearer vision of why we need the Christ of the Bible. We get clear vision for why we need His perfections, like His righteousness. And brothers and sisters, we always want to have a tender conscience, a conscience that detects sin and feels shame when we've done wrong. But we should note with alarm that the conscience may be seared, If you've ever worked in medicine, you might have used silver nitrate to cauterize a wound, or maybe you saw someone do it. Cauterization is searing or burning the flesh, either chemically or with heat, to stop the bleeding. Well, sin is like a burning brand to a sensitive conscience. At first touch, it hurts. But as the touches go longer and more frequent, the nerve endings of conscience die. If you have branded cows, and I think many of you have, you've probably noticed that they jump at the first touch of the hot branding iron. But after a couple seconds, the nerves are seared, their hides are seared, and their nerves don't send the signal anymore. Well, the conscience of a person can be seared if, instead of hating our sin and revolting from it and turning to Christ, If instead of looking for the remedy for sin, we just keep on sinning, eventually our conscience will stop doing its job. The hurt will stop. And what does that do? It allows us to progress to more and more heinous sins. If we claim to be a Christian and our conscience is seared by unremedied sin, we're going to be hypocrites And hypocrisy always leads to apostasy. If a church leader or teacher has a seared conscience, he'll have trouble not telling lies about God. The Bible tells us all to repent when we sin. This is very important today. Hope you'll listen carefully. Repenting is turning away from our sin and back to God. It's like cleaning house. You get rid of the offending filth and walk again in God's holy way. And the way you do that is by a prayer. We have to confess our sin. We have to say, Father, I sinned against you by, and we name our sin. And then you, after naming your sin, you might pray, God, forgive me, please. And cleanse me, give me victory over this and all of our sins, all of my sins. John 1.9 tells us how to do this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But if we do not actually hate our sin to the best of our ability, and if we don't turn from it back to God and try from then on to obey God, we have not repented. Feeling bad about something we did wrong is regret, but regret is not repentance. I say again, we have to hate our sin and we have to leave it behind and we have to endeavor to obey God from then on. And if we do, we are cleansing and keeping a clear conscience. You have to have this clear conscience to obey God. Like Paul said in chapter 1, verse 19 of this book, it is your spiritual duty and it's my spiritual duty to hold faith and a good conscience. It's a spiritual Christian duty to have a clean conscience. That's the only way to holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If anyone will not clear their conscience through repentance, he'll learn to tolerate sin. It would be a little bit like never cleaning your house. You tolerate a little bit more dirt and a little bit more. It's filthy, but you get used to it and you can't see it anymore. As you know, houses and dirt don't matter that much. They're not eternal. But sin tolerated in your life or mine is offense against God. And he says, we are his house. You and I individually, we're the temple of God, of the Holy Spirit. And that matters. I'm saying all of this. I digressed long on it so that you can practice or begin to practice true spiritual religion. Repentance is spiritual engagement with God. The true religion always includes cleansing oneself in the power of the Holy Spirit from all defilements of body and flesh. It includes bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7. And the man who knows he ought to repent and doesn't do it is sinning. I'm also saying this so that you can be armed against false teachers. Because they will assert that sin isn't sin. That you can live with it and tolerate it as they have done. That's easy for them. Their consciences are seared. And if you follow their methods, yours will be too. It's a warning Beloved, it is so dangerous to ignore our conscience. It's so damaging. I plead with you in Christ's name. If your conscience is hurting, if it's saying to you that you are living in sin, or walking away from God, if you're rejecting Christ's ministry, if you're making room for sin in your life and are comfortable with sin, then you are in danger. And if you still feel a pang of conscience about it, all is not lost, but you must listen to conscience. It won't tell you what to do. Only God's word can tell you what to do. But it can tell you the general vicinity of where the problem lies. Sin, if you leave it alone, will bring forth death. You'll only destroy yourself and cauterize your conscience If you ignore little sins or if you tease yourself with more outrageous sins, you'll sear the conscience. This is, by the way, the process that is happening to unbelievers all the time, until the time and unless they come to Christ and are rescued. Think how serious this is. 
when we don't repent of our sin and turn to God, we're taking the side of deceitful spirits. We're taking the side of demons, liars, hypocrites, and apostates. And the only rightful place for such people is hell itself. So flee from hell. Turn back to God. Turn back. Why should you die when the remedy for your sin lies so close at hand? Now we get to the second part of this. Some people with seared consciences end up as teachers in the church. And in connection with them, we have to ask why their teaching of the external religious exercises is so deadly. And so the second part of this is is a warning that we not underestimate the danger posed by externals. Don't underestimate the danger posed by externals. Verse 3 says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If you're like most people, you probably read this verse about abstaining from marriage, forbidding marriage and abstaining from food. You probably read this and think, well, this is an underwhelming kind of false teaching. Surely you might think anybody who could be a front man for demons um, would be teaching some major sin. Why then does Paul mention two that may on the surface seem rather minor? Well, the danger from these false teachers is that they make matters of slight importance, especially external practices, to be the main virtue of holiness as a replacement and substitute for true spiritual worship. Satan easily persuades people that the right worship of God is in strict discipline and outward practices. The false teachers make, I'm saying this yet another way, the false teachers make godliness consist of things that are optional for Christians, or what we might call matters of indifference. They make them the main thing. They make those things the litmus test of belonging to God. Paul only mentions marriage here. He doesn't say anything more about it right in these verses. But let us remember two important truths. One is that being single is a fine and a good thing. And a single person may do much good in serving God, even as Paul himself was unmarried and served God. But celibacy is not required to be a good Christian. Marriage and the good things of marriage were created by God and are not to be despised. On the other hand, dissolving marriages through divorce for any but the two worst case scenarios is sin. I hate divorce, God says. If people, for supposedly religious reasons, put away their husbands and wives, that would displease God and that it would be the divorce he hates. As for forbidding marriage... The Roman Catholic Church is one, not the only, but I think it's one that teaches that priests have to be celibate or unmarried. Now you have to ask, ask, is that what God says? After all, the requirement in this book of 1 Timothy for overseers or bishops states that if married, they need to be the husband of one wife. 
So marriage is perfectly good in God's eyes for elders, pastors, and so on. What's happened in history, you might say, for these strict disciplines? Well, there's an ecclesiastical history called Moshim's Ecclesiastical History, and in it there's a description of some early sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects, with strict rules. And it says, Tatian, a disciple of Justin Martyr, had a great number of followers who were after him called Tatianists, but were nevertheless more frequently distinguished from other sects by names relative to the austerity of their manners. Austerity means strictness. For as they rejected with a sort of horror all the comforts and conveniences of life and abstained from wine with such vigorous obstinacy as to use nothing but water, even at the celebration of the Lord's Supper, as they wasted their bodies by continual fastings and lived a severe life of celibacy and abstinence, so they were called by the name of their sect, Tatianists. Well, indeed, it sometimes happens that a particular practice which Christians are free to do is particularly helpful to one of them. Something like perhaps fasting. But who then, it happens now I'm saying, it's possible for something to help a particular Christian who then insists that everyone else has to do that too or else the rest of them are not godly. That could be eating meats as opposed to only vegetables or eating certain kinds of meats only. The scripture shows by precept and example that ceremonial laws about clean and unclean foods are not part of the moral law and are no longer applicable as they were for the Old Testament church under age. Now it may be that a Christian finds some dietary uh, restrictions helpful for themselves, that's well and good, only they're not to be levied on everyone else. And the same with alcohol. One Christian may benefit from total abstinence. And by the way, there's probably a time in all Christians' lives when they should not, when they should be totally abstinent. But it isn't the Bible's mandate on all Christians for all time. And attaching religious significance to certain clothes or haircuts or a preferred Bible version all go in the same line of externals. They were so ingrained in the practice of the church during the Middle Ages that the Reformers, during the Reformation, revisited the liturgical calendar that the church had been practicing. And according as they looked in Scripture, they began to take away the practices uh, that were not biblical, such as no eating flesh on Friday, no fasting for Lent. Lent, you might say, what's that? Well, that's a period when Catholics and some others practice fasting for 40 days before Easter, uh, abstaining from something that gives them enjoyment. The danger is just what Paul is talking about here. Legalism, or the tendency to try to win God's favor on our own merits through devotional practices or privations as substitutes for true spirituality. Whenever you hear teaching or preaching, you need to test the spirits. The Apostle John tells the church, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Holy Spirit says right here that some will be devoted to lies, including forbidding marriage and abstinence from foods. The deceitful spirits are glad to welcome into the church all kinds of matters and practices that have no real value. Christians, you must test the spirit of what I or any pastor says to you by the standard of God's word. False teachers will profess to be Christians, but they forsake the authentic Christ of Scripture and switch in a substitute. Now you may be saying, well and good. I too want to know the true Christ and I want to practice true spirituality. Can you remind me how that's done? Sure. Perhaps not complete, but here are some practices or something that you can look for. And first, just start knowing that the Father, Father God, is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In Romans 12, Paul exhorts believers on the basis of God's mercy shown to us in Christ to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which he says is their spiritual worship. So God wants spiritual worship. How do you worship spiritually? Well, spiritual worship first consists in belief. It consists in faith in Christ as he is told in the Bible. All our communion and our fellowship with God is first through faith in him. And then it multiplies into love for God and for Christ Jesus. It consists in fearing God and obeying God and hoping in God. And waiting on God. It consists in denying self. And being content with what we've been given. Our contentment is because we have the greatest thing. That has already been given. That is fellowship with the Lord by faith. Spiritual worship consists in holiness. To include the repentance that I already described. And it consists in desiring God. And being moved to think and act. In order to bring God glory. Spiritual worship esteems Christ's excellence and his perfections above every other thing or person we could possibly love. Spiritual worship is with the mind. We judge Christ superior to all else. Spiritual worship is like Paul says in Philippians 3, I count all. All things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And adding to that, spiritual worship consists in our souls, not in external practices, but in our souls consenting to take Christ upon his own terms, by grace and not by our works or our efforts. Spiritual worship is when a man or woman gives himself or herself up to God to be ruled by the Spirit of God and welcomes in Christ's graces graces and righteousness as he gives himself freely to us. So welcoming in Christ, 
and his graces, remembering he's giving himself freely. So our souls must willingly and joyfully make themselves Christ's possession. We do what is spiritual when we willingly belong to him. And so I close with this exhortation. Even in in Reformed churches, where there is very little ceremony, it can be easy to slip into formalities, legalism and checking the boxes. God does not want us checking him off our to-do lists, such as I went to church or I went to prayer meeting, I read my Bible. He does want us to engage with him in spiritual fellowship. The means of grace will help us to do that, but only if by the Spirit of God we engage our spirits to be his. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of these verses, including the very interesting item, how to enjoy your food like a Christian. Let's beware of externals, and let's worship in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.